This is Perspectives on Justice. We look at the most current and controversial issues in the U.S. justice system. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr., and I invite you to join me in exploring how the scales of justice are balanced, criminally, socially, and ethically. You are listening to Perspectives on Justice. Hello. The May 25th death of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police sparked civil unrest and re-energized the discussion about policing in America. One initiative that has arisen from these discussions is defunding the police. The idea is to reallocate funds used to militarize our local police forces to other social service and emergency response departments. In this episode of Perspectives on Justice, we examine both sides of the question. Opponents of the defunding the police see the idea as dangerous and irresponsible. They argue in some cases, police forces need more funding to deal with crime and the war on drugs. They say a society where there is less funding or no funding for police creates a more dangerous environment for police and civilians alike. Proponents of the defunding the police point to the police brutality and murders of unarmed civilians, disproportionately those of color at the hands of police. There were only 27 days in 2019 where police did not kill someone. They argue that we have an opportunity to re-imagize what we know to be policing and civil service. Our guests today uh, are, first of all, Chief David Mitchell, the Director of Public Safety and Chief of the University of Maryland Police Department. Prior to coming to the University of Berlin, uh, Dave Mitchell was chief of police for the Maryland State Police and also was the former police chief of Prince George's County, Maryland. Uh, I'll add here that Dave Mitchell and I have been uh, uh, close friends for a number of years. Uh, I was the elected state's attorney during the time that he was the police chief of this county and I have admired uh, what he's done, and of course, uh, he's been recognized as an outstanding law enforcement person here in the state of Maryland. Our second guest is someone I also know well. This is Dr. Cameron Patterson. Cameron uh, is the director of programming for the Judge Alexander Williams Jr. Center for Education, Justice, and Ethics. Uh, Dr. Patterson uh, is originally from uh, California. Uh, he came uh, to the East Coast to work, uh, and then he was uh, selected uh, to be the programmer or director of programming for this center. Uh, he has a, a PhD uh, from Harvard University in African-American studies. Uh, I neglected to mention that uh, uh, Chief Mitchell uh, not only has a, uh, a bachelor's degree at the University of Maryland, but he also graduated from the University of Maryland Law School. So he's a lawyer uh, as well as a, a law enforcement person. So to both of you, welcome. 
to Perspectives on Justice. Thanks, Your Honor. Thank you, Judge. Yeah, so let's start off by uh, asking uh, what uh, defunding the police means to you and, and uh, what are your initial thoughts about this initiative? And of course, uh, uh, in my discussions with a number of people, it means uh, different things to a number of people. So let me uh, start off by asking uh, each of you what uh, this means. Uh, let's start off with Dr. Patterson. Sure, thank you. Uh, thank you, Judge Williams, and uh, thank you for having me. Uh, for this uh, really, really important and obviously timely uh, discussion topic. Uh, you, you answered the question uh, yourself in your introduction, uh, but to put perhaps a slightly finer point on it, um, I would say this. When you hear the word defunding the police, you could substitute defunding for divestment, essentially. Um, to put that in a historical context that might be relevant for some of our listeners, uh, you know, Ron Dellums, a representative in Congress from California back in the 60s, was one of the many people who led uh, the movement to defund and divest uh, from South Africa during apartheid. And so divestment <coughs> of institutions, governments, uh, uh, organizations, companies uh, who have been uh, shown and proven to, to engage in practices that are harmful, uh, whether it be uh, institutional systemic racism, uh, as, as in the uh, example of the South African government under apartheid, or other kinds of, of, of you know, criminal behavior, uh, harmful behavior, um, those kinds of entities, one of the means, one of the mechanisms uh, that activists often use to address those challenges is to follow the money. And, and so defunding and divesting uh, as a strategy of, of protest uh, has a long history. It certainly is not new. Um, and it certainly uh, is, is a widely recognized form of, uh, of uh, social justice protests, uh, obviously practiced during the civil rights movement um, with the bus boycotts and other modes of economic protest. And so boycotts, divestment, all of these strategies uh, fall under the umbrella of, uh, of the sort of strategies that are used to advance uh, various uh, movements and social, just social justice issues. More specifically, uh, as you alluded to in your comment, for me, <clears throat> defunding the police really has to do with two, two things, demilitarizing the police, uh, and reallocating funds from policing to other uh, social programs, services, and things that are needed in various uh, cities and communities across the, the United States of America and today. I'm going to ask you about uh, those programs that, uh, in a second, uh, but let's uh, give uh, a Chief Mitchell an opportunity to tell us what uh, his understanding and definition of defunding the police means to him. Thank you, Judge Williams. It's great to be here with you, Dr. Patterson. Great to be here with you as well. And interesting uh, dialogue in terms of defunding versus divesting um, and demilitarization. When I hear uh, defunding the police, generally uh, the way I look at it is uh, reallocating money to other programs so we can better serve our community. 
And there certainly are examples where the police are tasked with certain responsibilities that we're not the best equipped to deal with. Uh, many mental health concerns we know are better handled by trained mental health professionals. Now, that's not to say if somebody is uh, in immediate danger to themselves or they're uh, armed or something of the sort, that a 911 response and a, and a response from the police isn't appropriate. It certainly is. But for the most part, though, when we uh, look at uh, society and the volume of calls that we handle, most of them are not the traditional fighting crime kind of calls. Many of them are service-connected calls, such as uh, somebody who's homeless, or it's a junk car, or it's somebody who's having who's acting out and and maybe uh, intoxicated or something of the sort. Uh, so when I when I hear that, is there a way that we can say okay? Are there opportunities for partnerships out here that will uh, create a better service delivery? And there are. And we're looking at, uh, certainly at, at the University of Maryland, I'm looking to partner up with our uh, crisis intervention team from Prince George's County so that they're our partner in responding to those kinds of things on campus. So I like to think of it as not, uh, not abolishing the police, not uh, defunding to the, the police to the point where we don't have adequate 911 resources when we're called, but looking at ways we can reimagine and uh, better serve uh, the communities that we're sworn to protect and, frankly, who pay our salaries. Uh, uh, Dr. Patterson, I want to come back to you now and uh, talk about uh, who would benefit uh, from uh, reallocation, uh, disvestiture of the uh, of funds, uh, uh, which uh, agencies, what uh, uh, programs could be uh, mm -hmm. uh, picked up uh, if you defund it? Yes, well, uh, I don't know if this is going to be much of a debate because I don't disagree with anything that Chief Mitchell just said. Uh, and so uh, I think there is clearly common ground on this issue. I think that, uh, quite frankly, the as a slogan, defund the police, is uh, somewhat broad and can be interpreted by many people however they choose to interpret it. Um, in answering your question, Judge, which I think is, is really goes to the heart of the issue, um, I want to also quote uh, a colleague who Chief Mitchell works with, uh, Dr. Ray, mm -hmm. um, who in, in his article uh, published in the Brookings Institute uh, says this, defund the police means reallocating or redirecting funding away from the police department to other government agencies funded by the local municipality. That's it. It's that simple. Defund does not mean abolish policing. And even some who say abolish do not necessarily mean to do away with law enforcement altogether. So Chief Mitchell said something important that I think is, is key in this debate. What I'm advocating for is the transformation of policing in our country. Uh, you know, it's hard to have this conversation without providing some historical context. And so I'm going to mention a few things uh, that I think are resources people can, can use to kind of educate themselves on this issue. But before I get to that, I want to answer the judge's question. Uh, fundamentally, the chief, the chief hit on a big one, mental health, right? We know that, uh, as the chief just mentioned, uh, 
a lot of the calls that police officers receive really require a different kind of response. Um, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so our police officers, quite frankly, are being asked to do too much, just, just like our public school teachers, right? They're asked to be social workers, they're asked to be police officers, they're asked to do all of these things that really fall outside the purview of their expertise. And so our, our society has put way too much of a burden on uh, first responders, police officers, firefighters, school teachers, and ask them to deal with society's ills in a way that's inappropriate. So part of what needs to happen, though, is those other avenues of, of uh, social programs and services, be they social workers, mental health, education, uh, addiction, drug addiction, and alcohol, all of these things uh, that are designed to help support people's holistic health and wellness have to be invested in. And I think what, we, what has happened, and this gets into the history of why there's been such a ramp up, a, a robust ballooning of police budgets across the country. Um, if you, you can't adequately fund these other social programs at the local level, and, and it really is a case-by-case -case, uh, thing because some municipalities, some states need more support in one area as opposed to another. So I think that has to be assessed. But part of the reason that uh, these other programs and, and social uh, initiatives don't have adequate funding is because so much money, so much money has been allocated toward policing. Uh, and the mantra of protect and serve I think has gotten lost uh, in uh, sort of broader political discourse around what policing should be. And President Obama, uh, during his administration, presented this vision of uh, guardians, right? Police officers protecting and serving, being guardians, uh, and having a certain level of responsibility uh, and ethical accountability. Uh, but that's been laid waste, you know, with, with the mentality of uh, being a warrior, which is what was uh, one of the officers involved in the Breonna Taylor case. Uh, uh, refer to himself as and his colleagues as. And so the black community in particular and other communities in this country feel like their communities are, are occupied territory, right? And the, the mentality and the mindset of police and of the community is one of uh, animosity, mistrust, and, and sort of this warring mentality. And so we have to, I think, look beyond superficial reforms Stop treating the symptoms of the problem. Body cameras are a symptom. Banning chokeholds are a symptom. I'm not saying those aren't good reforms, but that is not going to the heart of the issue. We need to fundamentally transform our vision for policing in this country. And uh, my colleagues and I are working on a number of, of uh, uh, proposals around that. One of them is this idea of civic peace officers or civic justice. Civic stands for community invested violence intervention centers and coalitions, right? To have officers paired with peace officers who, are, who have the expertise to recognize and, and triage and diagnose a situation that can be de-escalated as opposed to turning into an officer-involved shooting, right? Uh, and so these are the kinds of things that we really need to be investing in because, quite frankly, I believe police officers are underpaid. When I say defund the police, yes, I think we need to look at police budgets and reallocate those monies and also remove the incentives uh, for search and seizure and other kinds of things that are questionable that allow police officers to, to build up these kind of arsenals of military, militarized kind of uh, uh, policing. Uh, but, but, you know, the officers who, who are uh, there need to be supported. 
They need to be trained. They need implicit bias. They need more than that. They need all kinds of training, right? They need to be uh, paid. Their salary should be increased because it's a very dangerous job. Uh, they need to live in the communities that they're protecting and serving so that there isn't this alienation and estrangement between the officers and the community. You know, it's, it's, we've gotten to a place in our society where police officers uh, are seen as, are seeing citizens as, you know, enemy combatants and, and vice versa. And so if that's the culture, then you're never going to have, um, you're never going to have peace. You're never going to have uh, 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 civilization, which is to live in a peaceful society. I want right? to come back uh, on the uh, issue of militarization, uh, another question, but I want to ask the chief right now. Uh, chief, uh, are we asking uh, too much of our uh, police officers right now? And, uh, what, what's your view on that? Uh, you, you mentioned before the 911 calls, and some of it has nothing to do with, uh, again, uh, policing and, and uh, protection. Right. So what's your thoughts on that? Well, in many ways, uh, we are asking too much of police officers. And I'm not saying we're asking too much of government, but we're asking too much of the policing part of government to handle, which is why in many cities, and for example, in Prince George's County, Baltimore City, and others, there are alternatives. You can call 211, 311, and so forth, as opposed to 911, and save that just for emergencies. Uh, when you look at uh, the model of policing, we're one of the few institutions left that still makes house calls, and we don't send a bill. Uh, so it's convenient to say, well, they're the most easily accessible, and they have a fairly fast response, so let's ask the police to do it. And in many ways, uh, <laughs> I went through this with wearing a mask. Let, let's not make the police out to be the mask police because nothing good going to come out of that. <laughs> we, we know that. So Or the immigration police. Or the immigration, or INS. Right. Well, I fought that battle when I was chief, and mm -hmm. uh, Your Honor, you were state's attorney. But uh, so in many ways we are. But we need to get away from this 911-driven uh, model where uh, it's efficient. You know, we can get around the territory, we can get there quickly and so forth, whatnot. But what happens when we arrive? Part of the problem is that we have lost our uh, view of being legitimate in our communities. Mm. And we're viewed as an occupying force. Mm -hmm. One of the ways we dealt with that when I was chief in Prince George's, and Your Honor, you were there when we cut the ribbons on, on many community policing stations, where we have officers dedicated to communities, They're the same officers, Here's what happened. The officers had an increase in morale because mm -hmm, they felt mm -hmm. appreciated. The community felt more trust, and they enjoyed having the officers there. Absolutely. Not only that, the information flow was great. Detectives loved them yeah. because they heard stories of what was happening, where, and so forth, and mm -hmm. we could solve cases. So we need to do more of that and, frankly, get back into that model, Yeah. get away from battle dress uniforms where we walk around, uh, right. you know, with an impression that we give that you're not approachable. I mean, who wants to approach somebody standing with a machine gun, you right. know, and a helmet and so forth? I mean, there are times when, you know, barricade situation, you're going to have something like that. But for the most part, uniform of the day out in the community as a guardian, mm -hmm. not a warrior, right, right. that model will work. And, I, and to the extent that uh, there, there are some calls that can be 
better handled uh, by public works, for example, and so forth. And uh, oh my God, homelessness. You know, that's, you know, when I was in law school, I was in the uh, law school clinic and I represented a number of homeless people. And I did a study on it. In fact, I did my writing requirement on it. I found that the worst place in the United States to be homeless in terms of getting locked up in a nanosecond was Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. so every, everybody talks a good game. That's right. But don't push that cart in front of my house. <laughs> They'll call the police. Well. Yeah. Police sweep in and lock you up. You know, the only thing you get when you arrest a homeless person is a homeless person with an arrest record. Yeah. We have some serious ills. We have public health crises, which violence is, which drugs continue to be. And we're, the criminal justice system wasn't designed for that, per se. Mm -hmm. And most chiefs will tell you that today. Locking people up just for being, you know, and they're addicted. There's a better way to handle that. And it's not cheap. That's where we get the pushback. Don't want my money going for that program. There's a better way to handle it. And we all know, as a Harvard grad, it's cheaper to send someone to Harvard than it is to incarcerate them. Yeah. Yeah. We know that. Let me uh, get back to uh, militarization and ask Dr. Uh, Patterson about uh, this concept. There's a lot of complaints about militarization of our police force. Can you speak uh, a little about the community's sentiments about uh, that and the defunding? Well, the chief, the chief just said it, uh, and uh, quite frankly, uh, I'm a student of history, and so uh, I go back to, I mean, these, these are not new debates, let, let me just say that. Um, and there is a fatigue factor involved here, particularly in the black American community in this country, because many of us feel like we're in the twilight zone, you know. Um, Dr. King, in 1967, said, uh, very clearly that the evils of uh, militarism, of poverty, uh, uh, of war, you know, uh, of racism, excuse me, uh, were killing the soul of this country. And uh, his words still resonate today. You know, we have to uh, have a different approach. Um, and, you know, to, to quote another uh, ancestor um, and thought leader from that time period, James Baldwin, and I'm paraphrasing, said, you know, crime is a symptom of poverty, by and large. And most of the crimes, crime over the past several decades has trended downward in this country, generally speaking, right? Yes. Um, violent crime, which is what most people are concerned about, is really where the focus ought to be, preventing it. Uh, but drug addiction, you know, and uh, some of these other, you know, low-level things that uh, are nonviolent crimes, um, you know, it's questionable how much time we should commit to these things. Um, and, you know, we live in an era of mass incarceration. Uh, the war on drugs, the war on poverty, all of these things have created this, this environment where this country incarcerates more people than any other Western democracy in, in the, you know, in the, any other country in, in the Western Hemisphere. And so how do we begin to address that and reverse that pattern, right, which is destroying families, you know, uh, all throughout this country and communities? Now, I was pleased to see that more recently with the opioid pandemic or epidemic, uh, it seems as though at the national level a different approach is being taken in terms of looking at this as a public health issue, as the chief mentioned, which it is. Uh, drug addiction is a, is a public health issue and it should be viewed and policy proposals to address it should, should be framed in that light. 
But that's new, and that's because the people who are, who are most directly impacted by the opioid pandemic are white Americans in, in you know, other parts of the country. But when black Americans in the inner cities, we know through our history, uh, were dealing with the same issues, drug addiction, crack cocaine, and others, and we judges are very, very familiar with sentencing disparities and all of that, uh, we were criminalized. We were, we were uh, and we were you know, locked up and the key was thrown away. And people are in jail now for things, for drug possession of drugs like marijuana that aren't even, aren't even illegal in many, many places now, now, nowadays. And so I think we have to begin to look at this problem holistically. The police should not be a occupying force. They should not be uh, incentivized uh, to, to develop these, uh, you know, uh, elaborate sort of robust military, uh, militarized uh, uh, armaments and things of that nature. Uh, every police department wants the best, and they should have 21st century policing technologies to make their job safer. I understand all that, uh, certainly. But, uh, you know, armored vehicles and, you know, y you have a SWAT team for that. If, if there's something that requires that kind of response, that's one thing. But just on a daily routine basis, uh, when you're walking around with a machine gun, you know, that sends a very clear message to the people who you're policing. Let me interject uh, uh, something in here, ask this question. Uh, what effect will defunding the police have on crime? And so, uh, Chief, do uh, you have any thoughts? Will it affect crime at all, or the detection of crime? Well, I, I, I think, I think it, it will reduce uh, criminal misconduct in such a way that it's prevented from occurring. If we have a better response to m mental health needs before things get out of hand and somebody gets to a point where their frustration, in many cases, they, they are either not made medicated or it's, uh, it, it's more of a uh, uh, in, inert type of thing with, with through uh, their chemicals, through their body, through their brain uh, chemicals and so forth, that they're acting out, they don't even know it or they can't help it, one of the two. Now, if we have better responses to that, then we're gonna have less risk of police officers uh, responding after things bust loose, if you will, and get out of hand and uh, somebody starts uh, committing a violent act. Uh, we've seen that before where it works, it's preventive, we can de-escalate. Mental health professionals paired up with police officers are not as threatening. They're more welcoming. They speak the same language when we get to a hospital and we have a, uh, uh, an emergency petition. When you have a mental health professional dealing with a mental health professional at the hospital, they're speaking the same language. Mm -hmm. The program in San Diego that came about like 30 years ago, when I was in Prince George's, I looked at it, very successful. Mm -hmm. It works. The other thing is, uh, is, is just the way we look at neighborhoods. Neighborhood sustainability, what a neighborhood needs to sustain itself, to live over time. The police are only a part of that. Mm -hmm. Neighborhood sustainability has to have education, it's gotta have health care. it's gotta have public transportation, so we're, we're just a part of that. Right. But sometimes what happens is elected officials get elected on a law and order platform where uh, you know, we're, gonna lock, we're gonna go out and we're gonna lock people up. You know, there are some cases where that, there's no question that a swift response and arrests are appropriate. But for the long haul, though, that generally is not what it's going to take. We know that has been demonstrated over time. We know that demilitarization, while supported, 
after September 11th. That's where a lot of this came from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of the money flowed into law enforcement. Now we got to have SWAT teams and all that money got used for, you know, equipment and vehicles and so forth. Whatnot. And you have to ask yourself, was that a best, was that really the best use of resources? I think looking back now, we'd have to say not really. I'm going to come back and uh, ask you a related question to that, but I want to ask Dr. Patterson the same question. What effect will defunding the police have on crime? I think it's a somewhat of a knee-jerk reaction that people have when they when you pose that question I think most people's minds because we've been socialized to to think along the lines of a sort of normative discourse in our country law and order political rhetoric has something to do with that and the history of it but there's a real uh, palpable politics of fear that that I think is pervasive in this country today and people are conditioned to think that if I don't have uh, more, if we don't give more money to police, there's going to be more crime. Uh, there's also, the reality is, as uh, Chief Mitchell alluded to, uh, people don't want to really solve some of the more challenging social problems that, that our country is facing. Poverty is a huge one, right? And being from California, being uh, in some of those communities that you mentioned, uh, Beverly Hills, very affluent areas, San Francisco, I went, I did my undergrad at Berkeley because uh, Berkeley, California had more resources and homeless shelters. They used to put homeless people on a bus in San Francisco and ship them over to Berkeley because they didn't want tourism to be impacted by, by the, the site of uh, the reality of poverty in this country. So that is a real issue. And that is, you can't just lock up poor people and throw away the key. But that is what we've done. We have criminalized poverty. We've criminalized being black in this country. We've criminalized a whole number of things. Uh, we've criminalized youth. When I was a uh, college student, I remember out in California, Prop 21 was essentially uh, labeled every young person who was part of hip-hop culture uh, a gangbanger, you know? And so there's all kinds of ways in which we have criminalized ourselves because the reality is we think that we're doing this to other people, but we're doing it to ourselves. And um, the result has been, uh, as we've seen, uh, just, just mass incarceration. So I don't think that defunding police is going to cause a spike in crime. But what's key in this conversation is that we go beyond, we look beyond the language of defunding and that we think about what it means to demilitarize and to reallocate funding appropriately so that these larger, more systemic problems like poverty can actually be, begin to be addressed. Um, now, there's something else I want to just mention um, because I think it's important when we think about this longer, this broader conversation about policing. Um, there's a long history uh, in this country of racism in, within our criminal justice system. And uh, the Equal Justice Initiative, led by Brian Stevenson, has issued a report this year called Re Reconstruction in America that looks at this. Uh, the Brennan Center for Justice has just issued a report called Hidden in Plain Sight that talks about the ways in which uh, white supremacist groups have infiltrated the police, which is not new. Um, and the military. And the military. And so we have to be cognizant of the fact that part of the, the call by Black Lives Matter activists like Brittany Cunningham and others to defund the police is inextricably linked to the reality that we have a problem with, we have a systemic institutional crisis in this country around uh, racism. And we have to acknowledge that. Um, we can't simply limit the critique and the conversation around criminal justice reform to, you know, what Joe Biden 
recently referred to as, you know, good cops and bad cops, right? Uh, bad cops make the job of good cops harder. You know, uh, you know, turning body cameras on, banning chokeholds, these are all important things, but they're talking about sort of case-by-case case incidents, and they tend to help, they tend to make people think about racism as, a, as individual prejudice. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about institutionalized systemic crises, structural violence, problems that are widespread, beyond policing, by the way. Police often are scapegoated because they are the agents of the state. Uh, but what happens when, after the arrest, after the, uh, uh, you know, the police has shot somebody or there's been some kind of altercation, then the person goes into a criminal justice system and we see the flaws and the problems there, as recently highlighted in the uh, Breonna Taylor case, et cetera. So this is a problem that goes beyond policing. And in, in many ways, police are the lowest paid people uh, within the criminal justice system often. They're the least supported. They have the most stressful jobs. They're on the front lines. And uh, quite frankly, police feel uh, unappreciated. And that creates a, uh, an attitude of sort of hostility, uh, and understandably so. So I think we really have to think about the whole structure of, of crime, of, of law enforcement. Let me in ask this, this uh, question uh, to Chief, uh, and I ask Dr. Patterson the same thing. I I'm not uh, sure what percentage of the budget we're talking about when we talk about defunding and reallocating. Maybe you have a, an idea on that, but. Uh, the other question is, uh, again, depending on defunding, does that put officers in more danger if we're going to uh, uh, defund? So I don't know if you have any thoughts along that. I'm going to ask Dr. Yeah. Passer the same thing. Uh, well, depending on how it's done, uh, yes, it could put officers at risk if there isn't minimum uh, staffing levels that are adhered to. So, for example, if you're working a precinct you know that when your shift is out there, there's a minimum number of police officers you need, and there are formulas that, that basically tell you that. Uh, so as long as we're meeting minimum thresholds uh, and we're maintaining 911 response calls because those are measured and people want the police there in a hurry, well, you gotta have the staffing right for that to happen. I think, though, that if we can reduce call volume, so let's take the whole workload of the police and we look and say, well, you know, uh, only 10% is really uh, fighting crime, crime reports. Everything else is like bar fights, mm -hmm. you know, uh, homelessness, uh, aggressive panhandling. That's one I used to, you know, go nuts over. We, we didn't even arrest people for that, really. Squeegee you know? boys in Baltimore. I mean, why, yeah, not, why yeah. not give them jobs, you know? Exactly, I mean, exactly. You know yeah. It yeah. makes a lot more sense. So if we can reduce call volume, let's take that time. We don't need as many officers. We can take that measure and put that into the current workload, take what that could have cost, and then reallocate parts of that back into the community so it can reduce police workload. Mm -hmm. To me, that's what defunding means. As long as we're meeting minimum standards where we have enough officers out there in case of an emergency that they're going to be uh, able to respond, much like the fire department. We have minimum uh, staffing levels so that we have, they can jump on the trucks and do that, do that thing that they do best. So I think that makes a difference. The other thing is the whole criminal justice model. Uh, when I was working with Lieutenant Governor uh, Townsend, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, we were talking about in the city of Baltimore, wouldn't it be great if we had uh, 
restorative justice in this way. Generally, violent crime doesn't start with a violent act. Generally, there are things that lead up to that. There is sometimes petty theft, there's acting out, there's things that young people get involved in. What if we had neighborhood councils that could act as uh, uh, restorative justice panels so that when you acted out, you did something, you had to appear in front of this panel. Now, this is not going to give you a record that you got to check the box, not get a job down the road. Mm -hmm. But you got you have to appear in front of the very neighborhood you live in. Right. Community policing. And answer yeah. why you did what you did. Mm. And there would be some kind of sanction. But it's restorative justice, giving back instead of locking you up and just taking you away. Now, I'm not I'm saying for very violent acts, obviously, that has to be treated differently. But kids don't start out with very violent acts for the most part. Come on, they're, 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 they, they need help. They're asking, in many ways, they're crying for help. Exactly. Let me ask Dr. Patterson to uh, give us a response. We only have a, a couple of minutes left, but go ahead, Dr. Patterson. Well, you know, I think, I, again, I, I have to agree with uh, the chief. Um, you know, we, we have to shift the paradigm. We have to change the way we think about this entire proposition. And, um, you know, I think that obviously, uh, for example, uh, and uh, this, this someone can fact check this, I believe the New York City Police Department's budget is something like $10 billion. And, it's, and it was just recently reduced a couple of years ago, but, but it's still, you know, it's just huge. Now, that's, a, that's probably the largest police department in the country. It so is. they're going to have a larger budget than, mm -hmm. you know, here, the police department here, for example. Mm -hmm. But you really, in, in terms of the reallocation, I think that needs to be done with a great deal of thought. And you need to look at what the minimum levels are, as the chief mentioned, that are needed in order to serve the population being served. You know, and I think when you look at a community, if you, if you approach a community policing model, maybe some of those large police departments serving, you know, huge populations of people can be kind of broken down into smaller departments um, so that you do have more of an organic uh, community investment feel. And then those individual departments have obviously a smaller budget, you know, but they're serving a smaller population. So it makes sense. I mean, th these are just, you know, looking at those kind, that kind of data and being, being very scientific and data informed about the way that we approach, you know, this is 21st century policing, right? Um, and I think we really do, I, I agree. Community policing, counselors, other uh, stakeholders need to be involved in creating safe communities where people can thrive, particularly young people, right, who often uh, we know are, are coming from um, poverty, abuse in the home, all kinds of things, you know, because no one shows up and just starts acting out. So I, I agree with that point. Um, another thing I do want to mention in, in going back a little bit to this question of demilitarizing, when you look at the Breonna Taylor case, demilitarizing isn't just weapons. Who, who by the way, we need, to, we need to be asking who benefits from the, the amassing of these sort of war uh, armaments, you know, in, in terms of policing. But that's another, another issue. But when you look at uh, no-knock warrants, that's a militaristic kind of approach to policing. Uh, and if we, if you didn't have police breaking into people's homes, as in that case, um, maybe the outcome would be different, right? When I look at the Breonna Taylor case, I, it reminds me of Fred Hampton in 1969, 
who uh, was a Black Panther in Chicago who was murdered in his apartment, and the police just barged in there and started shooting. So, you know, there's a, again, there's a historical lens on this that we have to be more cognizant about. I think people should, I, I would encourage people to watch documentaries like 13th by Ava DuVernay, to read books like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, to read books like Locking Up Our Own uh, by uh, uh, James Foreman Jr., to read books like The Condemnation of Blackness by Khalil Gibran Muhammad, uh, to read books like Lockdown America by Christian Parenti, to read articles, uh, academic articles, like The Avant-Garde of White Supremacy by Steve Marinat and Jared Sexton. Uh, these are the, I mean, we have to educate ourselves on these issues or we're gonna just keep on on this hamster wheel, having the same tired conversation. Some politician talks about law and order, gets people scared, people, you know, say lock them up. I mean, and it's just, you know, it gets us nowhere. That's good information uh, and good literature for us to read. Uh, uh, Chief Mitchell, you have the final, uh, a few seconds, uh, any suggestions you have for people on this subject of defunding the police, what should we do? Well, uh, the only thing I can ask, uh, Your Honor, first of all, thank you and Dr. Patterson for having me, and it's a great conversation. Um, I would encourage folks to take uh, as much as they can, and, and these are such emotional issues, but to try to keep an open mind, number one, and ask a lot of questions. You're going to hear a lot of different opinions out there, and people are entitled to their opinions, but not their own facts. Let's look factually and look at root causes mm. as opposed to symptoms that we spend a lot of money putting Band-Aids on. That's right. Assume positive intent, and I believe with good Lord's help that uh, there's a brighter future ahead. And vote. <laughs> of course, vote. All right. Uh, you've heard it uh, from two uh, experts in this area. I want to thank Dr. Patterson for his reflections and Chief Mitchell for his thoughts and reflections Thanks, also. This has been a good session. Thank you so much. Uh, we are listening to Perspectives on Justice. I'm your host, Alex Williams. Today, police budgets and the allocation of those funds and resources are being raised in conversations around the country in ways that haven't been in the past. These conversations have given rise to a pervasive myths about the reality of police budgets. We would like to dispel a few of those myths for you right now. Myth number one, police department budgets are small fractions of city budgets. Here are the facts. According to USA Today, Police department appropriations generally account for the largest share of the budgets in 35 of the 50th largest cities in America. However, it's difficult to draw meaningful comparisons between cities because they use widely different budgeting mechanisms. For example, the huge Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department's budget, $656 million, is funded not only by the city of Las Vegas, but Clark County also contributes a significant amount. And there's an allocated property tax exclusively for funding police. Myth number two, a Pew Research Center finding shows that overall, opinions on the police are the same today as they were in a similar poll conducted by Pew four years ago. Here's the fact. Pew's findings show that overall, 
opinions of the police are less favorable today than in a similar poll conducted by Pew four years ago. Two-thirds of respondents said that individual officers should be held legally accountable for using excessive force. But few of those polls polls said they would support cutting police budgets. Finally, myth number three. Attorney General William Barr claimed in a speech at a Fraternal Order of Police conference last year that we are fighting an unrelenting, never-ending fight against criminal predators in our society. Here's the fact. A 2019 Vera Institute of Justice report found that fewer than 5% of arrests are related to serious violent crimes. Welcome back to Perspectives on Justice. Over the past several months, we have seen and heard the conversation around defunding the police, and they are continuing to rise in this country. Many communities are tackling the issue of police reform to try to bring more parity to the needs of the community and the needs of the police department. With me now is retired Judge Maureen Lamastney. She is co-chair of the Prince George's County Police Reform Work Group, which was convened by Prince George's County Executive Angela Alsobrooks. I want to say uh, something else about uh, Judge Nabaski. Uh, she and I uh, actually uh, were appointed uh, the same day as assistant public defenders for Prince George's County, and I've just uh, watched her career blossom uh, so wonderfully across the years. She was a fearful, a fearful and fearless uh, defense attorney representing uh, people who were accused of crimes during her years as the public defender. And then uh, after so many years, she was named the district public defender for Prince George's County. Uh, after that, uh, the governor appointed her to uh, a judgeship on the circuit court where she has served so brilliantly. And uh, she then took the, the cue after me. She retired right after I retired uh, as a judge uh, from the uh, circuit court for Prince George's County. So, uh, Judge Lamaskney, welcome and thank you for joining me this evening. Thank you very, very much for inviting me, Judge Williams. All right, great. So, Judge Lamaskey, uh, tell us about the police reform work uh, that's going on right now. And uh, I know you have a role as uh, co chair. Tell us what's going on. I am co-chair with Delegate Alonzo Washington. He is our delegate from uh, District 22. We have 22 or 23 members, and this is the busiest, hardest-working task force or work group uh, that I have ever seen. We have divided ourselves into five subgroups. Ms. Alsobrooks gave us a very broad challenge. She wants us to come up with recommendations that will restore public trust in law enforcement and increase the cooperation between the public and the police. So we have five work groups, uh, budget, um, internal discipline, uh, community oversight, uh, community policing and basically an excessive force uh, group. Those groups meet uh, once a week and we have a 
meeting of the entire group once a week. So many hours a week uh, go into this, and the task force itself is comprised of a really great cross-section of uh, academia, uh, the courts, um, citizen groups, uh, people who work for the county, and it has been a really uh, a privilege and a, a learning experience for me to be part of it. We are at the point of still holding meetings with presenters. We have a meeting uh, tomorrow. Um, I think we have three more meetings with presenters scheduled. Then we'll have a final listening session. We started with a listening session where anyone in the community could sign on to Zoom and say, this is what we want you to do. This is what we think the problems are. And we're going to end on that note as well. We're going to get our recommendations together. We haven't started that yet, but I think we'll have some very good recommendations to present to Ms. Also Brooks, and then she can decide where to go from there. Yeah, I know uh, that there's a lot of work uh, ahead of you. And, and let me uh, ask you this, are there a couple key uh, uh, areas of reform uh, in the area of policing that uh, people uh, are looking at, not just perhaps in uh, this county, but uh, across the country? Are there any key uh, areas that need Addressing. You know, in, in, in keeping with our mission to restore trust, I think accountability and transparency are issues that are, are very primary. Um, people f seem to feel that it is unfair that, you know, the police have private discipline procedures that nobody knows uh, the background of the police that statistics aren't available as to the transparency. How many people did you stop for a motor vehicle violation that then ended uh, in an arrest? And of course, the major one is the use of force and what the, you know, the police, the local general orders or a statewide standard for the use of force should be. Now, now, Judge, uh, you've been a, a public defender, you've been uh, a trial judge, uh, you've handled so many uh, civil and criminal cases in the area of uh, excessive force and uh, other kinds of Fourth Amendment violations and so forth. Uh, uh, what's your uh, reflections on the uh, distrust that you mentioned between the uh, uh, police in the community. There's, uh, a lot of people are talking about the fracture between the community and the police. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? It was one of the reasons I was so glad to get involved in this. I grew up in uh, New York, and in my neighborhood, the police were our heroes. Um, they were there to help us. Everyone trusted the police. And now it is such a sad situation where the police really are regarded as the enemies. Um, obviously, it's a very, very complicated issue. Uh, I think it does involve racism 
at the level of the stops and the frisks and why people are so <laughs> unhappy to see the police. So I think there's a lot of changes and there's a lot of uh, changes to the culture that need to be made. Um, one of the things, you know, I know in New York, they stopped with those random stop and frisk. Um, just stop them. And almost no one, you know, you don't find that many guns, you don't find enough drugs to justify the distrust it caused when all you're doing is walking through your community and you're stopped. You, you, you mentioned that uh, growing up in New York and I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and there was such a thing called Officer Friendly. That's what, uh, as a little fella, uh, we were always told Officer Friendly would help you across the street and, right. and be there directing traffic. Do you think we'll ever get back to those days? I hope that, so. Yeah, that we get Officer Friendlies? <laughs> I hope so, because it's, it's a comfort. It's a comfort for, for, for society. Uh, there's a lot of discussion, uh, Judge, uh, around the country on uh, defunding the police. Uh, you've heard it. Uh, I've heard it. Uh, we're discussing it. In fact, our previous uh, guests were there. you have any thoughts or perspectives on defunding the police? I, I, I think when I use the term defunding, and it is a national movement, I mean, I think it's such a misnomer. It really doesn't mean that it means reallocating, redefining, reimagining what the work of a police officer should be. And that is all very, very positive. In fact, I've heard it suggested that the funding the police should mean more money that goes to training as an investment as opposed to, you know, less money for training, but reallocate the resources to where they're needed the most. Yeah, now, you, you've served as a public defender uh, for so many years. Uh, uh, what's your reflections on the relationship between uh, the police and the court system and uh, uh, maybe even uh, talk about their relationship with the uh, prosecutors and so forth? You know, most of the police that come into the courtroom are professional. They're out there. They're doing... Um, what they're supposed to be doing. When you listen to the public defender clients, as we have throughout the years, you get a little bit of a different perspective, and it sort of goes to what I was saying before. It's, you know, you litigate a search and seizure because your client says, I was just walking down the street and got, got stopped, and they found the marijuana in my pocket. But the police are such a necessary part, not only to keep order in our communities, but to make sure that justice is done in the courtroom. Uh, Judge, I uh, want to go back for a second on the uh, police reform work. Uh, tell me, uh, when is that uh, group expected to complete its uh, work, and, and how is, are the recommendations going to be uh, implemented? Our recommendations are due December 4th. So we're winding uh, up our presentations in early November, and then we will vote first in the subcommittees, and then as a group, uh, 
as a whole group as to those recommendations, and it will be a majority vote, and then it goes to Ms. Osselbrooks, and it's entirely in her discretion how she wants to proceed from there, if she wants to accept the recommendations, if she requires more study into some of the recommendations. Obviously, we were so time-limited, and I think she was right to time-limit us because it's important, let's get started, let's see if we can move in the right direction. But it doesn't give you much of an opportunity to really dive deeply into a lot of the issues and obtain a lot of facts. So we should all be, be wrapped up with a report. In fact, we had a meeting before I came in here about writing the report and how we're going to get our templates and so we can get this smoothly uh, into one package to present, one nice presentable package to present to the sure. county exec. Now, uh, now Judge, uh, you and I, of course, were uh, assistant public defenders uh, back in the day. I, I won't uh, go through uh, any You didn't uh, mention the day, I which I appreciate. I'll just say back in the day. <laughs> but uh, have you seen uh, any uh, changes uh, with the uh, department? Uh, has it uh, grown progressive uh, across the years? Or when we were back there, uh, there was a uh, reputation that uh, they wouldn't particularly like to hear now about Prince George County Police, but uh, what, what changes have you seen uh, with the department across the years? They've gotten so big, and there has been really, um, you know, I think a disconnect. I remember being a public defender and the police officers would come into the office. They want to talk to you about a case. You'd see them out in the hallway. They want to talk, you, you know, you know, can't you give this guy a break? Okay, I'll do it. I don't think much of that goes on anymore. It's like, you know, you're doing this and by definition you're not on my side and there's no no sense of everybody, look, we're all going to work together and try and get the best resolution for the community. Sure. Uh, again, uh, a Judge, uh, there's going to be a number of recommendations that's going to come down, and there's so much conversation around the county and around the country about uh, policing and uh, reforms that's necessary. What should the uh, ordinary citizen uh, do or think, or how can they be helpful in the idea of reforming uh, policing and so forth? What, what can we do? I think the ordinary citizen should stay informed and ask questions. Um, if you know of someone in your family or a friend who has a contact with a police officer that you don't feel is appropriate, there should be a call to that officer's superior. And everyone should know, you know, that some things are unacceptable. I think a lot of the time we need as a community to say, you're our police force, and we have a right to tell you how you're going to behave towards us. And if it's not polite, and if it's not acceptable, it should go all the way up the line. Well, your, uh, your wisdom is uh, just profound, uh, and uh, for those out in the audience or, or those listening in the com on the uh, broadcast, uh, what uh, 
would you tell them about uh, the type of culture that uh, we would need uh, to really uh, embrace uh, law enforcement and the police? What kind of culture are you uh, suggesting? Well, I think first the police have to change. It's not them against us. We're all working together. We all we all want the same thing, and that's we want to go home at night and be safe. We want to walk down the street, and we want to be safe. So that, you know, us versus them really, really needs to change. And I think the public needs to recognize very consciously that the police do a very, very hard job that requires, at times, extraordinary bravery. Um, and the police need to be respected for the job that they do. So I think it, it needs to go both ways. And I think there should be a lot of communication. And that's what I'm saying. If there's something that makes you unhappy about what the police do, you should express it and express it appropriately. And I think that goes a long way towards, you know, let's manage everyone's expectations of what we really want those our are, community uh, to be. Those are profound words from someone who's been on all sides. She's been a judge, she's been a public defender, she's worked with the police. So let's uh, take what she says. Uh, judge Lebaski, thank you so much for joining us thank this evening. Thank you so much for having me. I want to thank my guests Chief David Mitchell and Dr. Cameron Patterson, as well as Judge Maureen Lamasney. The strain and fracture of police community relationships has long been the subject of discussions and concerns. The call for defunding the police has been widely discussed across the country. Meanings and perspectives differ as to whether, how, and what aspects of police funding should be defunded or changed. It is critical for citizens to learn more about the specifics and pros and cons of whether there should be defunding of the police. Hopefully, this episode of Perspectives on Justice positions all of us to move in that direction. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Perspectives on Justice. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes, be sure to go to wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr. Until next time.